0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Susan. Hey, Bob.
1: How are you doing? I'm great. Well, that's good. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available both via streaming streaming video and uh, as an audio podcast. You are Susan Thornton. Uh, Until... Pretty recently, a career diplomat. Now you're a senior fellow at Yale Law School at the Paul Tsai China Center, specifically Yale Law School. Also a non-resident uh, senior fellow at Brookings. I guess uh, you you had a a, a long uh, career in the State Department. You worked in both the Obama State Departments and the Trump State Department, largely on China affairs. But you're also uh, you also speak Russian. You're you're con- you're conversant in Russian issues, Russia issues, and so. That's good. All that's going to come in handy um, <laughs> today. Uh, you were, uh, for the first part of the Trump administration, you were acting assistant secretary for East Asia and, Pub- and Pacific affairs at the State Department. The reason that you remained an acting assistant secretary, I gather, is because people like Marco Rubio said they would conf- the Senate would confirm you over their dead body or
0: something <laughs> like Correct. that. Correct. Okay. That's basically it. Yeah, I was acting... Uh, went through my confirmation hearing. Uh, The secretary of state who nominated me was summarily dismissed. The new secretary of state came in and had a new idea. That was Rex Tillerson, yeah. Okay,
1: okay, good. Uh, So uh, maybe we'll have time to ask you what life was like uh, more generally in the Trump administration. I'm sure it was eventful. Um, But why don't we just uh, start out by sizing up the current situation? I mean, obviously- there's a war in Ukraine. I want to ask you how that you think that looks from China's perspective. But but even to back up even further, we seem to be entering a pretty sustained Cold War with both Russia and China. Um, uh, and you know, Cold Wars don't have to be with both. I mean, uh, you, you you might say that the, the Cold War with China kind of ended or at least eased up in the early '70s before things really eased up in the cold war ended with Russia but but now it's looking like we're going to do both barrels at once is that is that your assessment that that we're headed toward pretty chilly relations with both or do you have hope that there will be some warming up with one if not the other or what
0: well, yeah, I think what we have now, we could ca- characterize it as kind of this dual containment policy, right? Containing Russia and containing China. But I guess what I would want to say is that we shouldn't think of them as exactly the same. I mean, mm-hmm. Russia has, by virtue of its now kind of invasion of Ukraine um, and pretty massive onslaught there and uh, pretty horrifying, made itself really an international pariah for the foreseeable future. Um, and and. Steep step to a level of I think risk taking disruption in the world that that China would not normally be thinking about engaging in. So, you know, but we've got this containment policy also now toward China that we've been pursuing basically since the second year of the Trump administration and the Biden administration hasn't backed away from it. So, so yeah, we've got both of them going on, and of course. They've found a lot of common cause with one another and been cozying up to one another as well in the process, which um, is a problem for us and for trying to uh, disentangle all of this. Hmm. Um. And what do you think drives
1: the cozying up? Is it more probably more than one thing?
0: Well, you know, the Chinese and the Russians have had a pretty bad relationship, actually, going all the way back to, as you mentioned, the '70s when. Sort of the Nixon trip to China in 1972 took advantage of the so called Sino Soviet split and got China over on quote unquote our side against the Soviets, got the Chinese to work with us, um, you know, against the Soviets, funneled weapons to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan for us and other things. Um, And, you know, then all the way up through the, uh, the 1980s, the Soviet collapse in 91. There was a pretty rocky relationship between the two of them. Uh, They fought a border war, of course, in the late 60s, etc. You know, the Chinese were so shocked by the collapse of the Soviet Union. It took them a while to kind of um, sort through, analyze what happened there, figure out what their relationship would be with Russia. They didn't have a lot of ties with Russia at the time. Gorbachev was the first leader to visit China. Um, since the Sino-Soviet split, and it was right before Tiananmen Square happened. So it was in May of 1989. So they had really been estranged. So the Chinese have been pretty concertedly building back their relationship with Russia over the last couple of decades, and particularly since Xi Jinping came into office, I would say over the last 10 years, they've really been, you know, trying to build back a better relationship And the recent, you know, cozying up has, I think, probably mostly to do with their um, common attitude and common feeling of being under siege from the West, especially the United States. And certainly for the Chinese, they see the warming relations in the last few years with Russia through the prism of the deteriorating relationship with the United States.
1: Okay. so there's a sense of common threat that both of them perceive us as threatening and and not not very friendly ourselves that's the, right the um so let let's talk a little about the um the the ukraine war uh i think you said that uh doing something this as kind of risky and uh and plainly belligerent as what putin did in invading ukraine is not the kind of thing that the chinese are comfortable with and might not be so inclined to engage in themselves. In fact, they have professed to be very adamantly opposed to violating the borders of sovereign countries. Uh, And the flip side of that is they've been very adamant about respecting the sovereign control of the internal affairs of countries. They don't, they don't want, want us uh, meddling, but in any event, especially
0: their own, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, (laughs) that's,
1: that's what I mean. And, 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 uh, and, and they've, uh, and as far as the, the you know the the first part, they pretty much abide by that. They haven't invaded any countries, I guess. Uh, now not for a while. They, they have, well, I mean, since how long has it been? When was the 1979,
0: last 1979? I think they had a little incursion okay. into Vietnam. It didn't go so well for them, but yeah, that was probably the last major okay. military operation.
1: Okay. So not since Bush declared a new world order. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh so uh the All that said, about how unlike China, what Russia did in Ukraine may be, China has found itself kind of implicated in the eyes of some people, uh, partly because right before the invasion at the Beijing Olympics, Xi Jinping and Putin got together. Of course, there were no U.S. uh, leaders there because we had staged a diplomatic boycott. Um, They got together together and did a high-profile kind of event and, and issued a kind of joint declaration that uh, condemned NATO expansion and declared that their friendship, the Russia-Chinese friendship, was, uh, quote, without limits or something something like that. Something very affirmative. The assumption in the West was that Xi Jinping knew an invasion of Ukraine was coming. I mean, we don't know what Putin told him about it, for sure, or how he described his expectations for it, but the 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 assumption seems to be that that Xi Jinping said just don't do it during the Olympics or something to that effect. In any event, China is now seen as, uh, in some sense, implicitly approving of the invasion. Now, I don't, I haven't followed their conduct since the invasion all that closely, or for that matter, the world's reaction to it. But but would you say they are in this kind of awkward? position of being associated with what's going on in Ukraine in the eyes of a lot of the world?
0: Well, yeah, I think it's quite natural that people would see that they had basically heard from the United States government. Our officials were telling China for months ahead of this invasion that this was what Putin was planning. The Chinese um, kind of, to our chagrin, disregarded that or fobbed it off or chose to characterize it as you know, bad intelligence or whatever. And, you know, then on February 4th, like you say, right before the invasion, 20 days before had this very, uh, you know, kind of triumphalist or sort of ostentatious appearance with Vladimir Putin. I mean, I think it is important if we're being fair, um, which we should be to uh, factor in that, you know, The Chinese, this was a huge event, their second Olympics, Beijing Winter Olympics. All the Western countries were either, you know, boycotting for reasons of uh, human rights, the repression of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, or they were not coming because of COVID. And very few, you know, major international leaders were coming. And Putin was basically the most prominent leader that uh, said he would attend even though his olympic team was of course under sanction by the olympic committee so he couldn't sit in the reviewing stand with the other mm. leaders he couldn't engage with his team officially but he you know this was a big favor to xi jinping that he went and appeared and so that declaration that they made together um, has to be seen in that light i think the chinese were more interested in having him there for protocol and you know ceremonial reasons than they maybe weren't paying as much attention to the details of the declaration as they should have been or to the potential for what it would mean if if indeed Putin did what we said he was going to do shortly thereafter. I don't mm-hmm. think the Chinese probably knew exactly what Putin was going to do. I don't know how much the timing had to do with anything the Chinese would have said. Um, but certainly there's a feeling, I think, now uh, that the Chinese were a little bit uh, played in this one in, in terms of you know, they were made to look as though they were endorsing something that they probably would have preferred not to look like they had endorsed.
1: Now, do you see that reflected in their behavior since the invasion? They haven't condemned the invasion. Uh, on the other hand, I guess they're not providing a lot of, you know, the, uh, much or anything in the way of material support. I don't know. And I'm, I'm not clear on the extent to which they may be helping Russia with sanctions relief or what. But what well, what is your sense? what China is and isn't doing with respect to Russia since the invasion and what that may reflect about their attitude? Well,
0: I think they're in a pretty tricky spot. There was a UN Security Council resolution called for almost immediately after the invasion that condemned uh, the Russian invasion. Uh, There was some negotiation about that resolution in New York. And my understanding is that the Chinese... Uh, said that, you know, if we didn't include a Chapter 7 resolution, which has to do with the, you know, kind of introduction of military force or military, um, you know, uh, response, that they would abstain. So that gives you some indication of kind of as what opposed, their,
1: As opposed to veto, is that as right? Opposed as opposed to vote to against.
0: Vote with the Russians against the resolution, right? right. right. Wh- that which, was the uh, choice. So, um, of course, 141 countries voted to condemn the okay. invasion and 35 abstained. And I think five voted for including Russia. OK, so I mean, this uh, is gen- this is General
1: Assembly. I guess I got that wrong. There, there, there wouldn't have been a veto anyway. So this is this is in the General Assembly.
0: So there was a vote on the Security Council and then there was a subsequent vote okay. in the General okay. Assembly. So both votes, the Chinese abstained. Um, and, you know, that. I guess is better than voting with Russia, but it's certainly not the kind of responsible stand that you would want a permanent member of the UN Security Council with a veto to take, a major country, you know, mm-hmm. that is pretending to be and hopes to be a, a global leader. So it's an obvious violation of the UN Charter. The Chinese always talk about. Um, the, you know, the importance of the UN, its principles, and uh, of course, as you mentioned, the importance of uh, territorial integrity, sovereignty, these kinds of issues. So um, it was a big favor, I think, to Russia to have them even abstain. Now they have, um, I would characterize their position on the invasion as being very uncomfortable with the military side of it, with the casualties, with the Um, conflict part of it with the humanitarian crisis coming out of it, the refugee flows, but they're also in a way trying to have their cake and eat it too and remain and remain so-called neutral in a way in the, uh, in what they declare publicly about their stand. They've said there should be peace talks. They think this war should be stopped as soon as possible. They have uh, basically accused the U S and NATO of causing the conflict and of continuing to stoke the conflict by continuing to supply weapons. They don't say what the alternative should be for the Ukrainians to that, of course. Um, And they also, the Chinese had a very good relationship and a lot of interaction with Ukraine before all of this happened. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that's notable is that Xi Jinping phoned Vladimir Putin the day after the invasion, um, we don't know what was said there. The Chinese claimed in their readout that you know he called for Russia and Ukraine to settle, you know, to to engage in talks to have a, a diplomatic settlement. But um, we don't know much beyond that. He has not called Volodymyr Zelensky, so hmm. I think you know they're trying to not offend Russia. They've worked on building up this relationship. They have a long border. They don't see how crossing Putin is going to necessarily help their national interests at this point but they also don't want to be seen as a major supporter of what Russia has done and I and they don't really see that you know kind of getting themselves more involved is going to help them in any way because they probably don't think they have much influence on Putin to stop this thing mm-hmm. and uh, they aren't really that inclined to you know, to help the U.S. out or do the U.S. any favors since we are we are. They figure after we're done, you know, being focused on Russia in this conflict, then we will again turn our sights on China and continue to um, sort of uh, prosecute our containment strategy toward China in a more vigorous way. So they may feel this actually gives them a bit of breathing room from what they feel they've been experiencing. Mm hmm. I
1: guess in the long run, if you if you imagine, I mean, assuming there's not some kind of peace deal within months that entails sanctions relief, and you assume that kind of the West stays together on sanctions, I would think that for Russia, the relationship with China is vital, right? I mean, China is the country that has the capacity to take a lot of the pain out of the sanctions in a lot of ways for Russia, right? I mean, including like, suppose there's, you know, we're, we're trying to keep High tech, like microchips, from entering Russia or whatever. There's just all kinds of ways China can be helpful, and I, I don't suppose, sure. and I assume, they're they're China is entirely leaving the possibility open that they will be the lifeline. That seems to be the, the state of things. I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, China is the second biggest economy in the world. They're the biggest manufacturing operation in the world. They haven't had a ton of trade with Russia up to now, but the two economies are quite symbiotic in terms of what they, what they produce and what they export. I mean, Russia's, you know, su- re- supplies a lot of food and energy, which is China's the number one food and energy importer in the world. So, mm. you know, uh, China has been sourcing those things elsewhere up to now, but if they felt they needed to provide Russia a lifeline, they they could probably do a lot to help them. And, you know, they've said that they're going to continue to, they're going to respect the sanctions. They're not going to provide military material to the Russian military effort. And I think so far the U.S. has seen that that has been sustained, but they've also said that they're going to continue to engage in normal trade relations with Russia. So there's a lot of stuff that's not sanctioned and that'll probably uh, continue to move across the border. Um, I think that is going to have, I mean, it will be watched very carefully. And I think over time, the Chinese will be in danger of being targeted for even some of that normal trade under sanctions if the war drags on and gets worse and worse. But uh, right now, we have even Europe engaging in trade with Russia. So I don't think you can, uh, you know, envision that the Chinese would be hit for engaging in trade that the Europeans are also engaging in at the moment. But if the Europeans move away from, you know, Russian energy over time, and it, you know nobody else is trading with Russia except China, then I think China will come into the sights of, uh, you know, people who are. Thinking about secondary sanctions. And there are Mm -hmm. a lot of those around in Washington. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, a lot of people have drawn a comparison. You know, the analogy goes Russia is to Ukraine as China is to Taiwan. And there's been a lot of speculation about whether what is happening in Ukraine and the Western response to it and so on increases or decreases the chance of China invading Taiwan. Of course, China would take pains to draw one distinction, which is they don't consider Taiwan a sovereign country. And in fact, a lot of the world including the united states has kind of uh participated in in the idea that it's not a sovereign country right i mean what what nixon said to china was we're basically you know we're giving you taiwan we're giving mainland china taiwan's chair at the un uh and i don't i gather that most countries do not recognize taiwan as a sovereign uh nation is that is that right or
0: yeah so just a to- Real short <laughs> uh, statement on the Taiwan, our one China policy versus what other countries do. There yeah. are a few countries in the world that have a, a unique kind of policy toward Taiwan. It's not a recognition of Taiwan as an independent actor, but it. It sort of gets close to the notion that the status of Taiwan remains unresolved and we support the status quo. And there's very few, I think it's us, the UK, and maybe Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of, mo- most of the rest of the countries in the world have uh, in their agreement to diplomatically recognize the People's Republic of China. They have agreed that uh, Taiwan is so-called part of China. So mm-hmm. they have a much more uh committed sort of to this notion that Taiwan is not is not and would not they would never recognize that Taiwan as a separate right. country. There are of course 14 countries that do recognize Taiwan as China. So there is okay. there is this ambiguity out there.
1: Okay. Now what is your take on well I guess first of all how likely you consider an invasion to begin with, how long? How likely you considered uh, an invasion of Taiwan before the Ukraine invasion, and secondly, whether how Ukraine is playing out has affected those odds.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting to me that in the context of Ukraine, all of a sudden, and this was going on a little bit before the Ukraine events, but you know all of a sudden this notion of war over taiwan has really moved into the forefront of people talking about what's you know us china relations and what is the likelihood of conflict in the coming years uh, i think this is you know really partly a product of our information environment um you know in the us we tend to only be able to focus on one thing at a time and all of a sudden everything has become a product of this War in Ukraine with Russia and everything is kind of about war now mm-hmm. um, and it it really doesn't make a lot of sense, I think, from people who have looked at you know China and Taiwan and studied this issue that you know all of a sudden because there's a war somewhere else in the world that we should be talking about you know automatically about oh well, maybe China's going to use this as a a, a window to invade Taiwan, or maybe this makes an invasion more likely, et cetera. I mean, that's really not how things work in international relations, and certainly not in this case, I think. I mm-hmm. mean China, the the parallel that's most relevant to me between Ukraine and Taiwan is the way Russia has felt it has been treated by NATO and the us and the West for the last you know decade and a half, two decades there is a parallel there um, with the way China feels, um, mostly the US in this case, has been encroaching and treating it and disregarding its warnings and trampling on its security interests over the last, say, you know, more than a decade. Um, and specifically with respect to Taiwan, I would say that the chinese perception would be that the us has been really pushing the envelope on things that the chinese find provocative and counter to their security and to respect to taiwan over the last 5 years and that and does
1: what does that include arming taiwan i mean i gather don't do we have actual troops in taiwan now as a result of a a, a, a trump initiative like there are special forces there or something or
0: yeah well i think we you know <laughs> These are all very kind of gray areas. And a lot of these things that were not ever talked about publicly are now in the Trump era. And this isn't the only thing talked about publicly constantly. And it's very hard, of course, in diplomacy to handle that kind of a change. Uh, So there may have been, you know, episodic, you know, rotations of troops or visits of people or training. Um, There was training that went on for, Um, some Taiwan uh, military people in the U.S., etc. But it was all very quiet. And, you know, of course, we send arms to Taiwan. That's Mm -hmm. been... A constant since the um, the reversal of the diplomatic recognition of of Taiwan and, and that goes back to 1979. The 70s. Nixon, yes. Nixon, yeah. Nixon started arming Taiwan. Yeah. Well, we used to have, you know, a, a military um, defense agreement with Taiwan. We had bases on mm-hmm. Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And as part of the normalization, there was agreement to remove those bases, you know, to draw down, you know, to sort of gradually uh, diminish our military support for Taiwan. Um, and then, uh, you know, and basically, as weapons have changed, and as so many years have gone by, some of the some of the provisions there have just been, you know, it's a salami slicing kind of thing. It's been 40 years since we had those agreements and and things change. And so we can't really change the agreements because they are steeped in this kind of catechism and um, diplomatic kind of agreements that can't now be revisited because the politics have only gotten more difficult since then. But, you know, we continue to send arms to Taiwan. The Chinese constantly protest that and they don't like it, but they've put up with it, you know, as long as these things are defensive and they're clearly for you know uh defensive reasons if we if we wanted to station nuclear weapons or something on taiwan that would be i would think a red line mm-hmm. but you know they've put up with that but so that's not really the thing that is pushing them to the edge what they're seeing is you know a lot more military activity um from the us around taiwan and mostly what worries them is that the taiwan authorities have moved basically out from under the one china framework that was agreed to by the previous president of taiwan and has thus you know put the entire relationship across the taiwan strait into some kind of ambiguous zone and they are worried that the us is supportive of this moving out from the one china framework by the current taiwan president they're worried that future taiwan presidents will push this further that the U.S. is kind of tacitly or sometimes even openly supporting this kind of move toward independence. And I think the parallel, again, now with Ukraine is, you know, people are sympathetic to Taiwan. It's a vibrant democracy. Um, They've, you know, come out from under martial law. They've got a very dynamic economy, Um, you know, and, you know, so it's just a very compelling story and, you know, facing a big bully next door that wants to, you know, impose its will on you that it's that part is very mm-hmm. similar in the narrative. But of course, you know, Taiwan is not recognized as a sovereign, independent nation. So the U.N. charter and all of that would not mm-hmm. be considered parallel. And as,
1: as you suggested, I mean, China would say to the U.S. much about Taiwan, much what Russia says about Ukraine, for example, like you guys demand your sphere of influence, right? You're a great power. If anybody tried anything remotely like this with respect to Mexico, you would do whatever it took, you know, including staging a coup, whatever. Uh, that's, that's part of what's going on here, right? And it, I mean, it's kind of, the big difference is, it seems to me like Russia is in relative terms, a declining power. And so maybe is for that reason, very sensitive to issues of respect, just kind of psychologically, because it's hard to adjust to a downward status, you know. China is a rising power whose actual power in the area is becoming much more formidable, all right? But, sure. So those are differences, but they both are kind of saying that by your own definition, I mean, to America, of what, what you would define as your sphere of influence, Taiwan and Ukraine easily qualify as as legitimately in our sphere. They would say that, I mean.
0: Yeah, they would definitely say that. I mean, Taiwan is 100 miles offshore. It was an island that had been occupied by Japan during World War II. And previous to that was returned to China after World War II as part of the settlement. Of course, the reason it's now separate is because China had a civil war and the losing side, the side we backed, fled to Taiwan. And the Chinese at the time... Uh, couldn't mount the cross Taiwan Strait amphibious, you know, invasion to re- to to return it, partly because of the Korean War that broke out in the 1950s. So, um, you know, there's a long, complicated history with this. But I think in general, I mean, the Chinese would say there are Taiwan's offshore islands, which are not offshore from Taiwan. They're literally, you can see it from the shore of the mainland, like five mm-hmm. miles out, or less in the strait, those islands belong to Taiwan. So it's kind of amazing that this status quo has lasted as long as it has. But I mean, obviously China sees this as a huge security vulnerability um, to have either Taiwan be independent and open to stationing of US forces and missiles on that piece of, uh, of, of property, um, you know, or just the control of it not being, you know, within their kind of Range of control, they see it as a a security threat. I mean, in many ways, similar, I suppose, to the way Putin would say that NATO coming right up to his borders would be seen as a as a threat. Now, you can argue with those um, perceptions and say, you know, in the modern day and militaries that we have and the kind of weapons we have, that's much less relevant, et cetera. But that is not going to penetrate the walls of either the Kremlin or Zhongnanhai. I would say
1: mm-hmm
0: um so
1: the original deal on Taiwan was kind of that of our one China policy I gather was okay so we won't fully recognize Taiwan and the idea will be that uh, we acknowledge eventual integration of Taiwan into China so long as it's peaceful right the, uh, right our, it,
0: our main preoccupation was with um you know non-compellants that As long as it was peaceful and it was somehow worked out between the two sides peacefully, that Mm -hmm. that would be um, okay with us. And
1: is it your view that China, in principle, if you imagine a world where uh, Taiwan, um, you know, has just good relations with Beijing and they trade and they're not, you know, there's not a big upswelling of uh, a movement in Taiwan to to merge with Beijing but there's not you know a huge uh, formidable independence move they're just getting along is it very is it your view that China would have been willing to kick the can down the road kind of forever like and just like not talk about it i mean i'm kind of imagining like if i'm in if i'm in beijing running china there's probably no point at which i welcome conflict with taiwan if if i'm not like getting embarrassed by the relationship you know what i mean like
0: yeah, like if you are the ruler of a country with 1.4 billion people and there's this island out there that's doing pretty well and they have 23 million people and they're managing okay and they're not causing you any problems, you might not want to make a problem over it. I mean, I think a forever is a long time, but yeah. you can certainly imagine that this isn't something that they want to take on um, if they don't have to. And that also that they think that time is on their side. I mean, I'm not sure that they're right about that, but they, uh, I think genuinely believe that, you know, over time, China's going to get bigger and stronger and more modern and prosperous and, you know, it's going to have a rich culture and, you know, people will want to kind of, um, be part of that, you know, the new shiny thing on the block. I mean, I'm not sure that's right because people really do like to sort of run their own affairs too and not be told what to do. But, um, that I think that they believe still that time is on their side. It doesn't look like, uh, it's been going in that direction in recent years, but I think they still think, you know, over time, they're going to be sort of the big kid on the block in this region and, you know, they'll figure a way to do this. Um, So
1: what do you think of our current policy there? Is it more provocative than it needs to be or what? Well, if you were in charge of U.S. policy, what would it be?
0: So the big thing I think that we, you know, that explains what we're doing is that we believe that Xi Jinping is um, much more anxious than what I just portrayed There are a lot of people in the U.S. military who look at China's military modernization. And in fact, the commander at the Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii said in testimony that, you know, he sees that the Chinese military will be ready, capable, you know, physically capable of taking Taiwan within uh, six or seven years. And so, you know, for military planners, that's what they're planning for. They think in those terms, as soon as China's built up enough weaponry and confidence and ability to cross the Taiwan Strait in choppy water, et cetera, et cetera, they'll do it because, you know, this is one of their goals. And so of course, as soon as they're ready to go, they they'll go, or we have to be prepared at least for them to do that. I mean, I think there's a difference between capabilities and intentions, obviously, but, um, but that's a little bit how we see it. And we think we need to Build up deterrence because probably we need to make sure when the Chinese have that capability, they still think it's going to be way too hard to get across the Taiwan Strait and take the island and maintain control of it. And so we're trying to beef up our deterrence. The problem with that is that as we beef up our deterrence, it looks to the Chinese like we're getting more offensive, right? And that we're getting more aggressive. And if we don't have good diplomatic communication between the two sides, There's no way for us to, you know, transmit credibly to the Chinese that this is really just about deterrence and we're not actually coming for you. So, you know, this is a this is where we get into this kind of escalating security dilemma where each side thinks it's doing things that are defensive, uh, but the other side sees them as offensive and keeps ratcheting up the situation. And I think this is getting to the point now where it's quite dangerous. I mean, in addition to sort of military deterrence. Um, because I think you know, largely the the political environment in the U.S. and and so the the political environment in the U.S. has always been very emotionally supportive of Taiwan. You know, we have an affinity for them for their for their history. We were allies in World War II, et cetera, et cetera. Um. So, and especially the Congress, because it was the administration that changed the Carter administration that changed recognition from um, Taiwan to the PRC in 1979, the Congress has always seen itself as the protector of Taiwan. So that gives you some sense of why the politics around this are so uh, heightened in the U.S. And I think, you know, a lot of what's been happening in addition to military deterrence is these displays of political support for Taiwan, which... The Chinese always have this uh, line that they use, which is we're sending the wrong signals to the Taiwan independence forces. What they mean is that we're sort of raising the expectations of people on Taiwan that they would be able to separate from China and that Enough people in the outside world would support them that they might actually succeed in doing that. And mm-hmm. that is really um, provocative to the Chinese. And it actually also, not just the Chinese government, but this is stoking a lot of nationalism among the Chinese population who kind of share with the Chinese government the view that, you know, Taiwan's return to China is a core Chinese national identity. Uh, goal, and that they um, see the U.S. as infringing on that and potentially trying to to, to keep them from doing that. And that is really, um, you know, kind of a dangerous thing for us to be whipping mm-hmm. up, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, and like, how parallel do you think that is to the situation in Ukraine? So Ukraine is another case where we started during the Trump administration, especially sending arms into Ukraine doing a lot of advising training from our point of view it was a deterrent that would decrease the chances of invasion but obviously from Russia's point of view it may seem like as you said we are getting a we're getting more and more aggressive b as we keep funneling the arms in uh, things are only going to look less auspicious for Russia in a war. They might as well, if they're going to, if they're going to have to invade eventually, they might as well do it now, right? I mean, I mean, we're kind of. There's a strong incentive for invasion. Uh, you know, the, the, both incentives are kind of happening at once. Yes, you're strengthening deterrence in a sense, but you're also sending a signal that they're going to have to deal with it sooner or later, and maybe better now than. Uh, later especially in the case of Russia with China you might say well they've got a big military buildup in progress they'll wait a few years uh, but Russia is not like a, a a military power of growing strength so I can see you know why, how just uh, strategically they might think well let's go right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there are still some big differences. I mean, don't forget Russia grabbed Crimea and invaded the Donbass in 2014. So right. this kind of goes back even before the Trump administration and it goes way back. And of course, the US was subjected to pretty withering criticism at the time that we didn't do anything about that. Um, and it's really hard to think about what you would have done, could have done. Um, but, um, you know, there are a lot of, uh, kind of Monday morning quarterbacking on if we had done X, then then maybe whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in in the case of uh, both Ukraine and Taiwan, though, there is a common uh, thread that you hear from both the Russians and the Chinese. It's not exactly similar, but what they worry about is the development of this um, identity. That is a uh, sort of moving in a direction that that is toward permanent separation, or in the case of Ukraine, pretty anti-Russian and pro-U.S., uh, pro-Europe. Which, mm-hmm. in the case of Ukraine, would mean that they would be in NATO, and there would be missiles and bases, you know, invited in, and would be right up to Russia's border, and 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 proceed with this kind of permanent separation in a way, psychologically, at least between Ukraine and Russia. In the case of Taiwan, they also see this growing national Taiwan identity that they are worried about. And a lot of the things you hear recently from the Chinese they're complaining about is like changing the history textbooks in Taiwan um, and other things that have been done to sort of elevate Taiwan national identity, which of course will make it harder over time for them to any in any way reintegrate taiwan meaningfully into the mainland. so so these are similar strains i mean it's you would have a lot of debates of course about how valid either one of these kinds of complaints were but it almost doesn't matter how valid they are because i think in these two places russia and china um they are they feel that they are valid. so mm-hmm. that's almost more important than than the argument about whether they are or not. mhm and
1: what do you think broadly about America's policy toward Russia over the past couple of decades? I mean, famously, a number of people warned about uh, NATO expansion, including George Cannon, including Jack Matlock, who was, uh, was that his name? Uh, yes, uh,
0: who was, uh, that uh, ambassador when ambassador I was in Russia Soviet. the first I mean, time. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, when you were stationed in Russia the first time, he yeah, was- Yeah, I a- was in Russia
0: in 1989, 90, and then again in 2010, 11.
1: Mm. Okay, so he warned about it. A lot of people did. Uh, Bill Burns. Bill Burns, yeah. now CIA director, whom I'm sure you worked with in the Obama administration, yeah. sent not only a memo in 2008 titled, Nyet means nyet on Ukraine, <laughs> but separately an email to Condoleezza Rice emphasizing that this wasn't just Putin. There was a consensus in the, Russia's national security elite. Ukraine is an absolute red line. And he specifically, in one of those two things, predicted that if you pursue this path, Russia could start meddling in Eastern Ukraine. It was as clear a warning as you could get. Um, since the war started, it seems to me there's been a lot of pushback in the foreign policy establishment against the idea that NATO expansion mattered much at all. It's happened very fast that, like if you if you suggest that NATO expansion mattered, you know, you kind of do so at your peril almost. Um, because it's in that you're accused of parroting russian talk putin talking points and stuff, but what is your uh and I've never heard you express your view on this I have no idea what the answer is, but what is your take on what our policy toward Russia has been because you you've been there for pretty much all of this
0: yeah, I mean I think it would be fair to say that for foreign service officers who spent any time in russia um we would have probably thought that the expansion of NATO was going to be a problem over the long term at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think what happens, though, in U.S. foreign policy is that you do uh, whatever is politically expedient at the time and you figure you can deal with these problems later. (laughs) So um, and and you see that right now with Taiwan, I think, as well. I mean, we see a very parallel kind of process underway. And Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is that that's not how other countries see these things. I mean, these are very important issues for them historically, you know, for their legitimacy, for their national identity. And we tend to be, um, you know, in some cases, I I would say like these two cases, pretty dismissive of that as as a legitimate point of complaint. And you know, in the case of Ukraine, they Russia did recognize them as a sovereign, um, you mm-hmm. know, uh, country. They're a member of the UN. Russia signed an agreement in 1994 that uh, promised to defend Ukraine after they gave up their nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think we need to separate out the egregiousness of Russia's action, right, invading mm-hmm. Ukraine with like a three-sided military barrage, shelling and Trying to take out their government, et cetera, et cetera, from all of the layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of antecedent factors that would have, you know, made them feel so aggrieved that they would be um, willing to take such a, you know, risky, right. stupid, in my view, move. Right. I mean, it's a clear violation of international
1: law, it, it, but it seems to me it is fair uh, when someone's broken the law to just ask yourself. Did I do anything to encourage uh, the breaking of the law? It's like an analogy I've used is like if my neighbor, like he loses his job, I know he has a drinking problem, I know he owns a gun, I see his wife having drinks with some handsome guy downtown. <laughs> it's probably not smart to say, Hey, sorry you lost your job. By the way, I saw your wife having drinks with it, you know, and then and then if some Saturday night you know, he goes crazy and kills himself obviously you're not going to jail, but it makes sense for you to revisit the wisdom of your policy. And I and I think it, it's, you know, he's the criminal, you're not, but I think it makes sense to, it should be fair to revisit the policy, uh, the wisdom of the policy. And, you know, in the current environment, that's actually just not a very popular thing to do. And I understand wartime is like that, you know, war, wartime affects oh, psychology. Yeah. This is
0: like, um, you know, a lot of people are really invested, I mean, Average Americans who wouldn't normally pay attention to foreign policy, which is most Americans, um, are paying a lot of attention to this and really inspired, of course, by what the Ukrainians are doing. So it is a kind of a fraught environment in the U.S. for sure. Mm -hmm. I guess, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk and I've talked to my former colleagues and colleagues about this notion that what if what if we had gotten the Ukrainians to agree to not, you know, to give up their... Uh, push to get into NATO, you know, months earlier, you know, if we had sat down and engaged with the Russians and said, okay, well, we would consider this, you know, would we be in a different place? We'll never know now. I mean, the sense I've gotten is that Putin, although maybe Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister in Russia might've been willing to sit down and have those discussions. And, you know, we might've dragged them out for a while or gotten somewhere that Putin really was never, once he got you know, in the mode of deciding that this was what he needed to do and that we were not going to be, uh, listening or, or, or flexible, that there was little room for discussion. And it does sort of look like that. If you look at the record of the couple months leading up to the invasion, Mm -hmm. but, you know, before that, if we had tried more seriously, um, to to yeah. head this off, would it have been different? Who knows. Well, in, but you're right; it's not a popular thing to talk about now because so many people are being killed, of course. So. Yeah.
1: Well, in November, Biden reaffirmed. You know, he signed some kind of document with uh, with Ukraine that that reaffirmed uh, the the commitment, I guess, to eventual NATO membership and did various things and. And then it was in December, I guess, that they, Russia issued what was, you know, kind of an ultimatum. It was a document the that they expected us to engage seriously, which I think from their point of view, we never did. And I guess the question is, at what point was it too late? And I, I don't really have yeah, a- Yeah,
0: I don't know either. I but... don't have
1: a clear idea. Um, the uh, And I think the complicating issue is it wasn't, NATO was certainly not Putin's only concern. He, he was also concerned right. about the EU and uh, Ukraine kind of- uh, leaving Russia's sphere of economic influence, its own version of the EU. I think in retrospect, we might have tried for something or the EU might have tried for a, some kind of creative solution to that that allowed Ukraine to maintain certain kinds of economic, who knows. But but the other uh, sticking point with Putin, I think psychologically, was what he sees as the U.S. role in the Maidan revolution, which he, of course, thinks of as a coup, an American orchestrated coup. Do you have a view on what, uh, I mean, we were pretty conspicuous, right? I mean, handing out cookies or sandwiches or whatever. And then there was the the phone call that, of course, Putin taped and, and, uh, you know, and so on. Do you have a view on?
0: Yeah, I mean, so... The, of course, the leak of the phone call was unfortunate because it makes it appear that we were much more in control and planning all of these events than we, in fact, actually were. And Putin, being a former KGB agent, I think was very not only skillful in in in, you know, putting that out publicly, but probably also interpreted it over interpreted kind of the U.S. role in all of those events. I mean you know, people talk about Victoria Newland going down to the Maidan Square and handing out cookies or whatever she was doing. And I mean, clearly, this is a typically American thing. You know, we love freedom fighters. We love protesters. We love people who speak their mind. We, you know, battling the oppressors. I mean, our foreign policy is based on the fact that uh, we're the good guys and we're doing battle against the bad guys. And this is kind of a Black and white binary that we get pulled into a lot, and it's not always very successful. Obviously, um, you know we end up kind of labeling people and then deciding we're not going to talk to them or whatever. And this has never really actually worked out very well for us. But it, you know, it's obviously a, 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 the the politics, and we're a democracy, we're a cacophonous place, a lot of interest groups, a lot of activists, a lot of people. I, I have to say I don't think social media helps much with any of this, but um, you know, so that's kind of where we go. I I don't really think that um, you know, Putin's invocation of the US role in all of this is is really what he um he thinks, maybe, or if it is, it's it's way over exaggerated. I, I
1: suspect he believes it. I mean, I think he's you know, inclined.
0: And I would say, look,
1: let's face it, it's a very effective phone (laughs) recording. I mean, Victoria Newland is discussing with the ambassador Ukraine. Well, let's see who should run the Ukrainian transition, the government after the the democratically elected president leaves office. Lo and behold, the democratically elected president flees for fear of his life as people are roaming the streets with guns and... (laughs) The person they settled on, and you hear their deliberations: should it be this guy? Should it be that guy? Should it be, yeah. The guy they settled on is does was become the, the head of the transitional government. I mean, look, I just as a citizen <laughs> watching this, I personally, I don't think my government should be. I have an old-fashioned conception of what diplomats are for. They are to engage with the government, not overthrow it. Uh, right. And and I have to admit, I, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. It wasn't nothing. It wasn't nothing. Right. I mean, I'm not completely hallucinating to think that this was more than handing out cookies. Right.
0: Right. Probably not. But to think that we were orchestrating it to the extent that it sounded like on that phone call, I really haven't, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm skeptical given the way I think we talk about things in terms of that we run everything in the world, but what actually happens in countries has a lot to do with the yeah. local local context, local personalities, local political battles and that kind of thing. So I I don't know if, uh, I, I guess I'm more skeptical that we were able to really, you know, pick the person who would be in and also, according to that phone call, the people who wouldn't be in, et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't know, seems... <laughs>
1: To go according to plan, it did. Yats, it did. Yats was the guy. See? We looked good, I guess. Yeah, in a certain sense. I mean, I guess I also just think we have to be attentive to how things
0: look. To yeah, other absolutely. People. And that, in a way, I mean, I guess in this current day information environment, to some exception, to some extent, perception is a lot more important than the reality. And that's just the way it is. And so yeah. you have to be, you know, now, I mean, basically, I think if you look at a lot of the Ukraine, Russia, how it's unfolded, a lot of it is in the information space. It's an information war. And uh, basically, the Ukrainians have done an incredible job in that respect, much, much beyond what anyone would have ever expected. Mm -hmm.
1: Let me ask you a a question about long-term trends in American diplomacy, whether it's my imagination or U.S. diplomacy has gotten a little more moralistic and preachy and maybe interventionist over the last few decades. You know, I was just uh, listening to Bill Burns's memoir, The Back Channel. And, you know, he's a diplomat. He says nice things about almost everything, everybody, with the possible exception of Dick Cheney. But, you know, pretty much he's not going to shower disrespect on anyone he's ever worked with or whatever. Still, I kind of almost got the sense That he felt of all the people he's worked with, that the golden age of U.S. diplomacy was like Jim Baker, first Bush administration. George
0: H.W. Bush. Those guys were professionals.
1: They didn't do a lot of gratuitous grandstanding. They were pretty much realists. They they weren't going to transform society everywhere in the world. They were trying to maintain. They lost the
0: election. They lost the election. They lost the
1: election. And who knew? I mean, I didn't expect. Bill Clinton to be as, uh, as interventionist as he ultimately became with, for example, the Kosovo thing, you know, which didn't have you in backing the way say the Bosnia intervention did, but yeah, well, anyway, what's your, what's your take on all this?
0: Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on all of this. I mean, I would, I would, uh, say that when I came into the foreign service, it was the Bush Baker team, um, And the way they handled the denouement of the Soviet Union was incredible. The first embassy I worked at was one of those 15 post-Soviet embassies that Jim Baker ran over and opened to make sure these countries could all basically try to stand on their own feet and be sovereign, independent countries. Because the biggest thing we were worried about, of course, at that time was a reversion, you know, that, that it would just be a temporary... and that the whole thing would come back, um, that Russia would would reassert itself quickly. And, you know, it's true. George H.W. Bush called for a new world order. We had the opportunity after the collapse of the Soviet Union to try to do that. And instead, you know, Bill Clinton came in and declared that we would have a values based um, foreign policy. Uh, We would, you know, spread democracy. It was the end of history. We had won. And of course, um, I think the Bosnia episode and the falling apart of the former Yugoslavia was handled in a pretty realistic uh, way and, you know, as effectively, I mean, still with us, it's not done by any means and we need to keep an eye on it, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as effective as it could have been done given the circumstances. There's a lot of things specifically to go back and revisit, of course, but um, they did deal with that. Uh, But, you know, this values-based promotion of democracy, et cetera, the, um, you know, all of the events in the sort of global war on terror, um, you know, all of these things sort of took away our attention and our time from building what we should have been doing, which was to realize that we didn't have forever as the unipolar superpower, that one day, you know, things would change, other countries would get stronger. In fact, that's what we were sort of setting about doing with globalization and was trying to spread global prosperity, open trade, markets, etc. Um, and that we would need to have structures and institutions in place to make sure that that future world would work better and would constrain these new emerging entities like China like Russia for example mm-hmm. at that time like uh India or many other places that have now come up and we didn't really do it um, and now we're dealing with that fallout
1: yeah I mean I don't know exactly what Bush meant by new world order at the time I took it to mean take take among other things take the United Nations seriously I remember how Kind of mind-blowing it was to me to see meaningful things happening in the Security Council because it had been deadlocked throughout the Cold War because of mm-hmm. the the possession of the veto by both Russia and the u s. and um and you know, the Persian Gulf War was a legal war in the sense that it had the backing of Security Council. The Bosnia intervention had the backing. So Clinton stuck with it that far. Kosovo got a little more dubious uh, mm-hmm. because it didn't have security Council backing. But in any event, I, I I agree with what I, you know, I, I, I think you're saying, which is that if you are a power that is bound to decline in relative terms, which isn't a bad thing, because it's partly in reflection of the spreading around the world of your own approach to kind of right. economic systems and so on, that you are, that wealth is materializing elsewhere. You're, you know, your, your relative power is going to depl- decline. The obvious thing to do, it seems to me, is is firm up the rule of law as a real thing in the world. So you don't have to worry about it becoming a jungle in which you're not the biggest animal, right? Right,
0: and one thing I would say is that the U.S. still has a comparative advantage in leadership on the global stage. I think we are the only country that can lead the global system. And we're probably the only one in the foreseeable future that is willing and able and uh, kind of has the uh, sort of compunction to do that. Mm -hmm. So even if we're not, you know, as powerful in economic terms as another country, or if they're getting close to us, i.e. China, I mean, I just, I think to sort of back away from that is just a kind of incredible abdication that you would never have imagined. Um, Even, even, you know, just five years ago, I never would have imagined Mm -hmm. it. So, you know, I hear President Biden talking about commitment to multilateralism, but, you know, the U S population doesn't support it. Congress doesn't support it. Um, and you know, we really cannot undertake major foreign policy moves in this country that don't have any support from most of the population. I guess Mm -hmm. the only other thing I would say is that politics is important here. Um, it's no accident in my view that it was Nixon that was able to go and meet with China, um, in 1972. Um, of course, you know, we saw president Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un, but whenever there's a Democrat in power, it's very hard to, you know, do anything kind of creative in foreign policy and get, get away with it politically. And, and that's just been, you know, a pattern that I think is undeniable. And, you know, now we're seeing it, I think, still with President Biden, where he's very uh, constrained in terms of anything, you know, solving a, a problem with diplomacy would right. be labeled appeasement for sure by the other side, right. no matter what it is. So, I mean,
1: I, I wonder and I just wonder if they don't have a hugely exaggerated fear of the actual political repercussions i i first of all wonder is that the reason they didn't engage more seriously diplomatically with russia over ukraine in advance not that i know it would have worked but it doesn't seem to have been a very deep engagement um i don't know if that was it or if there actually is ideologically uh, something you know closer to neoconservative floating or conservatism floating around the administration i don't know but uh it's certainly true we don't see them going out On a limb now. I mean, Trump. Trump was interesting. See, I thought one thing Trump showed in the uh, in getting elected after saying the things he said about foreign policy is actually most voters don't care as much about this as you might think. You actually can heap disrespect on John McCain and get elected president of the United States. Uh, And you know, it's really small but energetic interest groups that care about U.S. foreign policy, and it's because most voters don't care that they have such influence. So I, but but but. You know, as for Trump, I'm wondering what your experience was now he at first seemed to be certainly a departure from a foreign policy that you seem to think maybe got a little too values based for its own good and for, for purposes of preserving peace and 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 security. Uh, if anything, you know to to a fault, i mean he was he was almost you know kind of creepily cynical about how how realist he sounded like he was willing to be you know it's like hey it's a world of thugs putin's a thug what's the problem so on but but in any event he failed he failed to realize any kind of realist policy i mean first of all he kind of declared diplomatic war on china unless i'm imagining that maybe you have a different view but uh, and and of course the domestic, our american domestic politics made it hard for him to pursue anything like, like rapprochement with china because he was accused of being a china i, I mean russia because he was accused of being a russia Mm. Stooge, um, what did you, did you have hopes for the Trump administration? You were part of it for a while. Did you have hopes for that that weren't realized or what, what exactly happened? What was it like to be part of it?
0: Well, I guess my view, and maybe I'm naive, but I still think that America is kind of this city on a hill. I think that should be our foreign policy. Um, That is our comparative advantage. We're the most. Still, I think open, tolerant um, uh, society on the planet, and we welcome that, and we and we and we go with that, and that is sort of our brand. It's why people admire us. It's where our influence comes from. And so, to the extent that Trump was a basically big black lot on that brand. Um, it was very hard for me to see that happen. <laughs> um, and, you know, we can't just be transactional. We do have to be, you know, an exceptional America. I mean, American exceptionalism is our sort of national strategy in foreign policy, if you will. And how do you make that real is the question. And certainly, Trump's uh, very cynical kind of transactionalism—everything uh, about money—was not in keeping with that, and it was really hard, you know, to see the sort of disconnect from what our traditional brand had been. And I think, um, you know, some things he did, I was. I was interested in and I thought, well, I'll, you know, see if we can't make the best of this. So one of those things was the North Korea policy. Obviously, we've been struggling. I was on the Korea desk in the 90s when all of this stuff first came up, been struggling for 30 years to make any kind of progress at all. It was just, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And I thought, well, why not meet with the guy? See, you know, he's the decision maker you know, see if we can't get something going on this. Maybe we can figure out what he wants. Maybe we can get a process going. But, the, you know, Trump was just anti-planning, anti-organization, anti-interested in really the substance of most things. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't well done. I mean, I still think it might have worked out uh, and produced something if it had been done better. Um, but you know, it, at least it was an attempt. It was a try. It was dramatic. It was the kind of thing you hope for as a diplomat to see your country try to engage in to solve problems. So I was supportive of that. I was part of the whole effort to sort of get all the countries in the world to ramp up the sanctions and the pressure on North Korea before that meeting. I thought that was worth testing. I mean, Mm -hmm. diplomacy is a lot of testing, right? You're always testing You know, what are the bottom lines? What are the assumptions? Have we done this? Have we tried that? Um, So, you know, I welcome sort of changing things up in some respects, but the overall kind of um, approach, you know, trashing our allies, trying to get more money on everything. I mean, you can try to negotiate and get a better deal, but the way it was done and the public disrespect is not conducive to diplomacy, Mm -hmm. I don't think.
1: Okay. final question um you know there's a there's a tendency to view kind of war as just this perennial feature of human affairs and in some some parts of the realist school in particular to just see these inevitabilities like uh you know China well China's this rising power where are the status quo power uh there will have to be conflict right it's almost it's almost that deterministic in some in some uh, schools of thought. Uh, And it it just seems to me that it's at least possible that actually, you know, things change as history progresses. The communications environment is completely different. We can be in instantaneous communication with uh, leaders. Uh, Economic interdependence can be much richer and more fine-grained if we play our cards right. Uh, I mean, how fatalistic are you about Are you kind of disappointed that we're just given that it's like the really modern world, we still seem to be seeing the same things and don't humankind just doesn't seem much more enlightened than a few hundred years ago?
0: Am I disappointed when I wake up in the morning and see a leaked memo from the Supreme Court that talks about taking down (laughs) Roe v. Wade? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Um, You mean
1: by the leaking as well as the substance?
0: Yeah, I mean, has, have we not, you know, how are we still talking about this issue? It's 2022. I feel like we're going back to the 1950s, for God's sake. But yeah, um, I feel, you know, discouraged and disappointed, but I'm not giving up. And I I do think, you know, um, there was this debate recently in foreign affairs with John Mearsheimer, who is one of these kind of realist, offensive realist, deterministic and, yeah. you know, if you talk to him in person, he'll say he'll caveat it a little bit here and there. And, oh, of course, we have agency. But I just don't think that the agents will manage to prevail, um, you know. And, and I sort of set out there in my kind of riposte his piece on the tragedy of of great power politics that, that there's a lot of things that we've built up over the last 70 years in terms of institutions and constraints that should prevent a war between the United States and China. Um, however, if you look at all the things that I listed, you know, nuclear weapons and the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, um, you know, well-informed publics who would bridle at the notion of having a total war between the United States and China, a media, uh, kind of watchdog environment that would, um, kind of oversee the impetuses of politicians to rush to war and try to stop it, you know, the UN and all of the institutions of the international diplomacy, bilateral diplomacy, multilateral diplomacy, all these things that should stop it. Um, you know, it is a little bit worrying to see how all those things have been kind of not panning out the way people thought. And actually in some cases, and I'm thinking here about the sort of the information environment and the media environment is sort of, stoking the the animal spirits that would push us in that direction and i don't mm-hmm. know you know how to um try to reverse some of those things but you know if we're if we're counting on the wisdom of our leaders and our politicians to have private you know genuine conversations to try to stop these things. I mean, we're, we're running in the, in, we're running short on such venues Mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to sort of say we can't talk to these people is not the right answer. I don't think.
1: Okay. Well, we can close on that, I guess. Thank you, uh, Susan Thornton. Now, is there any place you would tell people to go to See your stuff. Do you have? Are you on Twitter, by the way?
0: Do you have a Twitter? I'm handle? on Twitter. I don't do much on Twitter, but I am on there, so you can go there. What's your What's um, your Twitter
1: handle? Do you do enough on um, on there to remember what your at Twitter handle is? S U A
0: Thornton. Uh, S-u- I think it's at S U A S U E A, and then underline, Thornton. and then Thornton. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or you can go to the 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 Yale Law School uh, Paul Tai China Center website. I think I have some stuff on there, and Brookings, I have some stuff on there. So.
1: Okay. I encourage it. Well, thank you so much for taking
0: the time. Thank you.